The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new non-fiction books. My guest today is Guardian writer Oliver Berkman, whose new book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, has just been published by Faber and Faber. Oliver, I'm very happy, do you see what I'm doing there, that you could come <laughs> into the Slate office to talk about it. I'm equally happy to be here, but in a, in a downbeat way. Oliver, I loved your book, which might well be the first volume of philosophy that I've ever read. But let's begin with your subtitle, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Kind of seems like it might be a joke, but as you point out, trying to be happy really does often make people miserable. Why is that? I think there's, there's lots of different reasons, and some of them have to do with the motives of the people running the positive thinking industry and our self-help culture. But at the most basic uh, level, I think it's just another version of that old parlor game about whether you can uh, not think about a polar bear for two minutes. The moment you try to do that, it's the only thing you can think of. There's an aspect to trying to think happy thoughts, to focus relentlessly on, on the upbeat and the positive and to stamp out any sign of negativity that just really attunes you to, to the opposite and, and causes you to be nothing but just incredibly aware of how, uh, of how negative you're being all the time. And I think that <laughs> basic idea then sort of generalizes around lots of different areas of, uh, of, of uh, psychology and emotions. So, so you chose specifically to focus on what you call the negative path to happiness. What is that? This was a term that I came up with really just to denote a family resemblance between a whole lot of different uh, philosophies and modern approaches to uh, psychology that they're not all the same. They have in common this idea about turning towards the negative. Not Instead of positive thinking, which involves trying to eradicate any possibility of negative thoughts or negative experiences, involves maybe learning to embrace failure, maybe harnessing pessimism, getting comfortable with feelings of uncertainty. They're all different approaches, but I think they all have that in common, that they, they say that we need to somehow turn towards the things that we've otherwise uh, spend all our lives trying really hard to escape. Indeed, you say deliberately plunging more deeply into what we think of as negative may be a precondition for true happiness. Well, one thing I discovered in the course of writing this, I mean, I set out to investigate what was wrong with positive thinking as an approach to happiness and to explore some other ways of getting there. But I then also had to end up by conceding that that happiness itself is a fairly problematic endpoint to be to be aiming at. So whether negativity will lead you towards something that is best called happiness, or whether it's something that's more to do with authenticity and realism and, mm. and truly experiencing life as it is. Your book is full of fascinating observations, studies, and so forth. But one of the things that really struck me was just the concept that visualizing positive outcomes, which is one of the things that this sort of motivational, happy-clappy, as, as English people might say, movement really stresses, actually seems to remove people's motivation to actually achieve the outcomes that they claim to desire. Once you say it, 
I guess it seems obvious, but it, it's that's so self-defeating. Well, it's fascinating. I think I think there are different contexts in which it has different effects. But the study that uh, really, really did it for me was this uh, experiment in which some of the participants were, were rendered mildly dehydrated. Uh, some of those dehydrated people were then asked to visualise an icy, refreshing glass of water that they were drinking, and others were not. And their energy levels were measured, I think, primarily through blood pressure. And what you find is that the people who have been asked to go through this mental uh, ritual of, of, of imagining that they've quenched their thirst they don't get motivated to go out and then find a real glass of water. Their energy levels fall. They, to some degree, act as if they've already achieved their goal in reality. And it's kind of strange and contradictory because positive thinking culture is full of this idea that, you know, your brain can't tell the difference between thinking something and doing it. That's kind of the basis of an awful lot of positive thinking's model of psychology. But when you actually follow the implications through, they're, they're not uh, favourable to, to positive thinking. Indeed not. No. You have a great chapter on the Stoics, which I swear, if there were Stoic centres on every street corner, they would be flooded after your book comes out, because I feel like Stoicism is, is the great hero of the book, in a way. The Stoics were actually seeking tranquility rather than happiness, and they actually embraced negativity, or explicitly embraced negativity as a strategy. They obviously hugely predated anything <laughs> resembling the positive thinking movement, but, they, but these two strands of thought agree on the idea that what causes a lot of emotional distress is, is our beliefs about events rather than the events themselves. The positive thinking guru's response to that is therefore to just make sure that you only ever have positive beliefs about what's happening, which uh, you know might be fine if it was remotely practical, but, uh, but I don't think it is. The, the stoic approach is to say, well, you should really examine those beliefs with a kind of sober, calm reason, and then you will discover that most of the time uh, it's just not rational what that means in stoicism is another whole question, but it's just not <laughs> rational to have those distressed emotions and then they will then dissipate, leaving you with a much more tranquil state of mind. And, and even, yes, what they call the premeditation of evils, this wonderful technique that involves deliberately focusing on the idea that things might go totally horribly wrong, partly because you'll appreciate what you do have. Um, right. If you remember that you could lose it, you'll appreciate the relationships you, you have if you realise that everyone is temporary and only here for a short time. And then secondly, uh, because the more you sort of confront the negative, the, the, the more that causes anxiety to dissipate, the more you're prepared for, for whatever might uh, befall you in the future. You know, we often say very casually, oh, things couldn't get worse. But in almost every situation, they actually could. And the Stoics seem to be saying that we really should ask ourselves could things get worse and to listen quite sincerely to the answer. Right. And Albert Ellis, the great, um, very sweary New York uh, <laughs> psychotherapist who I um, interviewed, he, he died a couple of years ago, but was very influenced by Stoicism. And he made this point that nothing that could happen to you is 100% terrible. It's a very strange thing to say because it seems very easy to come up with thought experiments about things that could happen to yourself or your loved ones that would be, for all practical purposes, 100% terrible. But there's actually, I think, a really important point there in that however bad something is, I can imagine it happening to 100 more people and then it's worse. It reminds us that, that this kind of absolute horror is not really a meaningful way or a rational way, the Stoics might say, to approach emotional life and that almost anything that you can imagine happening to you, you can also imagine finding the capacity for some kind of happiness after it, except if you died and then it 
presumably wouldn't wouldn't bother you. Right. Survival <laughs> itself is would make you happy. And you put yourself through an experiment on the London Underground to <laughs> to really get in touch with with that technique. Right. I mean, I don't want to imply that this yes. was the same as something absolutely <laughs> devastating happening to somebody. It really isn't. But but it's but it's hard to sort of simulate that in a test. This, on the other hand, is an exercise that Albert Ellis uh, used to prescribe to his patients, and he suggested that you go on the New York City subway. I did it uh, on the London Underground, which was arguably even more challenging, as you say, <laughs> for cultural reasons, and speak out loud the names of the stations in the in the carriage as you approach each one. And when I say this to people, and uh, the general response is that this is a sort of horrifying, agonising <laughs> prospect, and that's how I how I thought of it. But the really interesting thing about that is that that's kind of a disproportionate response because yeah. you're not causing anybody any problems. Uh, it seems very bizarre that you would uh, feel so panicky when you actually when you actually study that that um, that reaction. You're actually doing a service. Well, if anything, you're telling people which station they're getting to. I mean, there is an announcer who does that as well. But uh, anyway, so you you do this. I did this. It is excruciating. I, I don't pretend that it was somehow fun. But what's really interesting is that you realise the instant you start doing it and saying Chancery Lane on the central line, that you, on some subconscious level, had imagined that you were going to be attacked or arrested or your head would explode. Something, you know, completely terrible. And of course, what happens is just mildly uncomfortable. A couple of people look up at you like you might be crazy. Everyone else is completely wrapped up doing the crossword, as, as, you know, most of us are in our lives, wrapped up in ourselves most of the time anyway. And by the end of it, you sort of feel amazing because you're like, well, if I can deal with that. (laughs) And, And so... All I'd done was to trigger a confrontation between my disproportionate beliefs and the, the real facts. And in that, they are brought down to size and rendered uh, what, uh, what you could call you know, more rational, more proportionate. You also tried Buddhist meditation as another negative path strategy, non-attachment. What is that? This may be a, a, a particular way of thinking about meditation, but I think about sort of basic mindfulness meditation as being almost the opposite of positive thinking because the idea sitting there for almost a week in a meditation center in Massachusetts in almost total silence from six in the morning to nine at night, it was kind of uh, difficult and, and not necessarily fun. But what you're doing is learning to observe thoughts and emotions popping up and resisting the need to try to manipulate them, resisting the need to say, well, I'm only going to allow the positive ones. I'm going to turn the negative ones into positive ones. As I say, it isn't, certainly isn't fun at first. For the first couple of days, I just had terrible pop songs going around in my <laughs> mind because you're in this wonderful, tranquil, silent setting. And then you realize how incredibly noisy things are the rest of the time uh, inside your skull. Yeah. But the but the result I think uh, if you keep it up as I try to in a halting fashion is to learn to resist that urge to always be fiddling, always be manipulating your your inner state and 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 that enables you to just, you know, get on with more important things. Although one sort of question that I had was you're a writer and I think to a certain extent whether explicitly or not you were undergoing this week-long experience it would end up in your writing just in in a way as a writer you hope that everything that you do will give you something to write about Mm -hmm. did that sort of spoil the experiment somehow did that awareness get in the way of your mindfulness it's interesting because in some some other meditation that i've done since the idea is actually our our instruction was actually to keep a journal of of what went on and the 
then it's even more explicit. You know, you yeah. can't help but one of the th- thoughts that's going through your head is, I wonder how I'll describe this right. later when I come to write it down. Right. To some extent, I think that's that kind of self-consciousness is unavoidable if you are writing about anything that you're personally experiencing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just another challenge to think about those thoughts as yet more you know, clouds floating across the sky to, or whatever, the, the, you know, to use one of the most popular metaphors. And, and they are just as much that as any other kind of thought. Yeah. Let's take a pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any US listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. The Antidote will be available on Audible just as soon as Oliver has read it out loud for them, and I would just like to... To note that 20-something, the book we discussed on the last episode of The Afterword, is also now available on Audible. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download The Antidote, 20-something, or one of the other books available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, The Afterword will get credit, audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Faber and Faber has very kindly given us four <laughs> copies of The Antidote to give away to listeners, and Oliver will sign them. If you would like one, send an email with the words happiness giveaway in the subject line to slateafterward at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, November 30th, 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address and if you have any feedback about the podcast please send it to the same address slateafterword at gmail.com I'm talking with Oliver Berkman, author of the new book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Oliver, we're at that time of year when a lot of companies are doing their annual reviews and employees and managers are earnestly discussing the progress that they made toward achieving their goals from the previous period. And you say that companies should spend much less time on goal setting and indeed individuals and that they can be counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, this used to be this idea that of setting ambitious goals as being the fundamental defining quality of a, of a, of a great corporate leader or a overachieving <laughs> individual it used to be, I think, completely unquestioned. But but now there's there's more and more research that is beginning to suggest that it can have some problematic effects. So the, the most obvious one in terms of explaining it is that is that is that people with a very specific target are more motivated various studies have shown to cut ethical corners and to to cheat in order to meet their goals i mean the bit i really got interested in is this idea that by setting any goal for yourself as an individual or for a company you are by definition singling out one or a small number of variables and yet they're all attached to all the other variables. And that when you sort of focus on maximizing X, you don't know what it's going You're to do foreclosing y. To, to, to Y and to mm-hmm. Z. And I think that that really gets to the heart of it. Though One of the management scholars that I spoke to gave the example of a guy he knew who said that he was going to be a millionaire by the age of 40. And that was his personal goal. And he'd achieved his personal goal, but at the expense of uh, alienating his spouse and his children and and he's had huge health problems. And that's just a very, very immediate example of how by maximising one thing, you you cause problems with all the others. So uh, I think that's one of the the problems with too much goal setting. And you say, in fact, that a better model would be to act like a frog. 
<laughs> there are various different metaphors, and you have to try lots of different ones. Um, exactly, you have to make those noises. No, it, I think this is the idea that the frog thing specifically, which I have to explain now, <laughs> is, about, um, is about uh, leaping from one lily pad to another lily pad, sunning yourself and then leaping to another lily pad. This is how it was put to me by, by one of the people that I spoke with. At a more abstract level, it's the idea of maybe having a compass that guides where your company or yourself is going, maybe a set of values, but not uh, a specific rigid endpoint, and actually learning instead to be okay with taking a step forward in a situation of uncertainty. Because I think that a lot of the psychology behind goal setting, when you get right down to it, is a real uh, unease with those feelings of uncertainty and a desire to sort of say, well, I've got this firm goal, so that means I know how the future is going to turn out, uh, and that means everything's fine. And actually being ready to, to move forward without really knowing where exactly where you're going uh, is, uh, I, I think, is a much more fruitful approach. Speaking of security and insecurity, you have a chapter on the concept of security that begins with the example of the TSA rules. And most of us at this point have accepted that they are, in fact, security theatre. But at the same time, they are still comforting. And you say that we have a similarly irrational psychological demand for security that gets in the way of happiness. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to take the idea of security in the air, in the aviation context, because it is, as you say, so familiar to us. And yet we all sort of understand that by chasing feelings of security, we're actually not making ourselves more secure. We may in some cases be making ourselves less secure because uh, the staff have to put in all the time to focusing on these things that don't necessarily make any difference. And, and I think that you can see that as a microcosm of the broader idea of the human desire for security. This is inspired by uh, Alan Watts, the great 60s counterculture philosopher who, who uh, wrote a little book called The Wisdom of Insecurity, which is wonderful, in which he, he makes the case that the reason we feel insecure is that we are looking so desperately for security, that the hunt for security and the feeling of insecurity is the same thing. Right. It's, uh, it's quite a mind-expanding notion, but I think he's onto <laughs> something. Well, and you went yourself to Kibera, Kenya, partly to see that even in the midst of immense insecurity, people can in fact be happy. Right. I wanted to sort of tackle this head on because it's a very problematic notion, very awkward to talk about. If you've done any traveling in the, in the developing world, although it is also backed up by, by quite a lot of research evidence, you find that people living in very, very, very fragile conditions in terms of poverty, disease, uh, lack of resources, are, to put it bluntly, not as depressed as you might imagine and, and that actually there seems to be much more depression in, in, very, in very wealthy uh, and much more secure places. Now obviously a terrible conclusion to draw from this <laughs> that I try very very hard to avoid in the book is the idea that there's therefore no problem about right. people suffering these situations but when you immerse yourself in that environment, talk to people there and also then talk to psychologists and look at the research. I think the conclusion that you reach is that although those people have an overwhelming number of disadvantages compared to a privileged person like me or you, they do have one specific advantage, and that is that they do not have the option of wrongly imagining that certain kinds of security will be the answer to happiness. They don't have the option of thinking that the next pay raise or mm -hmm. the next promotion or a really nice big home is going to be the time when they're finally happy and secure forever. That is denied them. And the sort of ironic upside of that being denied you, I think, is that you are forced to confront 
insecurity of life as it really is, forced to um, depend on strong interdependent relationships with friends and family and forced to acknowledge what, you know, sometimes we do have to acknowledge as we did recently on the, in the east coast of the US, you know, that, that actually there is insecurity all the time in all life and there is a certain curious advantage in not being able to deny that. Indeed. You then move to the sort of concept of failure and I laughed out loud at some of the terrible products that you described <laughs> finding in the Museum of Failed Products which I don't think is the official name. No, they, the don't, they don't like the name, I don't think. <laughs> uh, which is in Arbor, Ann think, Arbor, Michigan. I think they should like that name. I do but, too, yeah. right, exactly. So these are things that just didn't work. You see in them a great lesson about happiness, right? Well, a great lesson about how... how much we struggle to avoid thinking about or confronting failure because this collection started off when a guy, an advertising marketing guy called Robert McMath just decided to collect every new consumer product that was released. He didn't say I'm going to collect Mm. the failures but such a large proportion of those products do fail that if you follow that procedure right. for a while, you will find that the, the vast majority of your collection are failures. It's now a very viable business. People, Product design people pay money to go and investigate failures so that they can learn from them. The, the really telling bit, I, I thought, speaking to, to McMath, who has since retired, is that sometimes it's executives from the companies that produce the failures who have to go back to the Museum of Failed Products to inspect them because their own companies were so allergic to the idea of studying failure that they just sort of swept them under the carpet, sent right. them home with a, with a product manager, and they were never seen again, and they don't have any, any um, samples of them. And there's so much to be learned by looking at where people went wrong. And I think that the psychological problem that we have with that is the idea that there's some, almost something infectious about failure. You don't right. want contagious. You, know, you, don't want to, you don't want to spend your time focusing on all the wrongness. You want to think that the thing you're going to do next is going to be the best thing ever. A couple of months ago I talked with Paul Tuff about his new book about how children succeed and there's a great chapter in his book about a chess teacher in an inner city school that has had immense success and one of the secrets is that this teacher focuses on where they went wrong and it's you know again it seems like negative it's very negative but they learn not to repeat the mistakes that they made and, and they have immense success because of it. And just to be more comfortable with the inevitability of some degree of, of negativity rather than sort of distorting everything you do to avoid having to feel it. Yeah. And another thing that we avoid, of course, is just any consciousness of death. We're in great denial about it, but you say that we would be far happier if we if we just let go of that denial. I think that's that, this is towards the end of the book because it is sort of, you know, the ultimate <laughs> yeah. um, the ultimate negative. negative um, the uh, psychologist Ernest Becker argued famously in his book The Denial of Death that almost everything we do is structured around this idea to, of trying to convince ourselves on some level, if subconscious, you know, that, that, um, that we're going to live forever. It's problematic because he thought that we got a lot of great art and great literature that way, as well as wars and, and, uh, and, and bad things. So one argument that you could make is, well, we should keep it that way because that's what produces uh, this denial, produces all, these, all this great art. But he came to conclude, and the studies that have attempted since then to, to put his ideas to the test I think also largely can be read as concluding that if you do it in the right context reminding people of death makes them more compassionate makes them happier in various other ways I think that it's time for a rediscovery of of that long lost tradition of memento mori that that death not just something we confront when we absolutely have to and are forced to uh, in such a shocking way uh, when it happens uh, to people that we know well but just sort of 
bringing it back as a as a topic, as something as something sort of informally present, as reminders in our in our day to day lives, I think is an extraordinarily powerful uh, and promising uh, idea. So, Oliver, where did this negative path to happiness take you? Are you a happy person as a result of writing your Weekly Guardian column and working on this book? I think I'm happier. I think I've come to really question what that even means. I definitely have a number of much more easily reachable techniques to deal with feeling sad or, or irritated or something like that. The, the worst case scenario thing I use on a sort of daily basis to keep anxiety and worry in check. And I do think that it's just, as I, as I said earlier, it's just to do with being more really alive to what is in life, including the, the, the negatives, uh, maybe that doesn't always make you happier. Uh, there was a great psychologist called Paul Pearsall who said that the, what we really needed more of in life was awe, A-W-E, mm-hmm. you know, wonder and fear mixed together. I would far rather think that I had uh, encountered and fully experienced that the highs and the lows instead of succeeded in some weird positive thinking mission to, to sort of uh, ignore the lows wherever possible. That was Oliver Berkman, whose new book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, is available in bookstores now. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you very much. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterword at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas. June Thomas.